really good to be here. God loves bubbles. That's very related to what I'm about to say. I'm not joking. Okay. My name is Sam. It's really great to be here to speak to you guys. Um, let's embrace the chaos. This is great. We're meant to be like these little people. Um, today we are uh, starting a three-week mini-series um, called Bodies, Biospheres, and Brands, where we're talking about the importance of the physical world to God um, and our role as the church in stewarding and looking after this physical world. Um, Often, I think we can get really focused on what we see as spiritual practices like prayer, worship, evangelism, and attending to the inner world. Um, And that's all very, very core. Don't hear me that I'm denigrating any of that, Um, but it's just only part of the picture. The physical world and the people in it uh, are hugely important to God. Um, I remember when I was in high school, Rangitoto College represent, um, I was standing around with a couple of Christian mates, and I was eating a packet of chips, and when I finished, I chucked the packet of chips at the bin and missed it. And my friend goes, you got to pick that up? And I thought, I actually said, uh, well, God's going to burn this world up anyway. Why bother? And left it and walked away. And they were like, yeah, good point. Now, <laughs> the thing is, that was not an isolated incident of thinking, right? Um, I was working out of a paradigm of a faith that had very little regard for this physical world. And I was not at all isolated incident in this. Um, I'd like to hear some scathing words from uh, climate scientist David Orr, who says, conservative evangelicals are now complicit with political forces sweeping us toward more terrible violence and the avoidable catastrophes of climate change and ecological ruin. Belief in the imminence of the end times tends to make evangelicals careless stewards of our forests, our soils, our wildlife, air, water, seas, and our climate. Some pretty heavy stuff. The thing is, he's kind of right. Um, We haven't always got this right. To give an example of this, um, here is some words from Rick Warren, who's basically one of the most read Christian authors of the last 25 years. He says this, To make the best use of your life, you must never forget two truths. First, compared with eternity, life is extremely brief. Second, earth is only a temporary residence. You won't be here long, so don't get too attached. Don't get too attached. Can I just say that is not good theology? Um, Modern Christianity has often become a religion only about the spiritual dimension, about souls or about our prayer life, about getting people saved and signed up. And all of those things are absolutely essential, but so is tending to the environment, um, building culture, making great art and food, and meeting the physical needs of those that need it. Essentially, the church, along with much of the West, has a view of reality that's split between the physical and the spiritual. So we can get that little diagram up. It's kind of like this. We have this idea of the physical world or the material world down here and the spiritual world and the world of the idea. So we're just going to leave that up for a little bit. Uh, In general culture, the way we see this played out is we actually reward the professions that use the mind and ideas far more than the professions that use the body. So if you're using uh, problem-solving the mind, a world of data and information, we tend to pay people a lot to do those sort of things. If you're working with your body, you tend to be paid less. So we kind of, this works out even in today's culture. So even at that level, the physical world in secular culture is seen as less important. 
And really, a lot of that comes from ancient Greek thought uh, about, uh, you know, particularly from our, our mate Plato, or if you're a Bill and Ted fan, Plato, right? Some people know. Um, now, Plato believed that this world was like a shadow of the real world, okay? So, the shadow of the world of ideas. Um, in this world, he saw as like imperfect and changing, and it was like a copy of the world of ideas. It's like, in the world of ideas, we have the perfect chair that all the other chairs are based on. We might have the perfect tree that all the other trees are based on. And we might have like the perfect croissant, right? So we have all the, these perfect things in the world of ideas in which the physical world is like a copy. Um, in this way of seeing the world, human beings live in both realms, though. So as humans, we have bodies, but we have brains. So we can exist in the physical world, but... We can apprehend or access the world of ideas through our minds. So even though the body is beastly and lower and a bit yucky, we can still use it as a vehicle for our brains that can apprehend the higher things of life. That's kind of how this view of the world is operating. But in Greek thought, um, luckily, our bodies are separated from our brains with our necks. So we had this here separating our beastly, yucky bodily desires from our purer head, you know, that had was, existed in the world of ideas. Now, the joke is, a long-standing joke, that the reason you can get, uh, in rugby, you can get a prop to run at a whole bunch of really large men was because they had no necks, so they have no separation from their bodily desires to their brains, so they could just run straight at them, it doesn't matter. But there's this real separation from ideas and physical matter. And it's a legacy that has remained. The physical world is seen as second rate, or to say it in another way, matter doesn't matter. It's a split reality and a detachment between mind and body, which plays out in lots of different ways in our society today, which I'm sure you can think of yourself. But another important Greek concept emerged in this time too, and that is the concept of the Logos. So if we can get that up, is there a slide for the Logos? No, there isn't, okay. So the Logos, if we could just get off that one. Um, another important Greek concept that the Logos was a, um, it meant different things to different people, very complicated Greek concept, um, but seen as like the ordering principle of the universe. Um, when people looked around, they thought, you know, the world seems to follow patterns. When we plant an oak seed, it turns into an oak tree. Seasons seem to follow a particular pattern. The stars and planets seem to go in a particular pattern. There seems to be an order and a pattern and a, and a, a reason or a rationale to the universe. And they called that the Logos. It's like the code to the universe that sits under everything. Or it's like something from the world of ideas speaking to the material world, holding it in order, not chaos. That was the Logos the higher reason that influenced matter. So then we get to John 1. So, then we get to John 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, the Word for the Word is Logos. So I'm just going to translate as we go. In the beginning was the Logos. Greeks would have been totally fine with that. Was this ordering principle there in the beginning? Yeah, great. And the, uh, the Logos was with God. Yeah, this ordering principle, this code for the universe being with God. Totally acceptable. I get it. Moving on. And the Logos was God. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense too, that God could be this ordering principle, this rationale, this code to the universe, holding things together in order. Absolutely. But then it goes down to say, and the Logos became flesh. 
And at this point, all of the Greeks would have been like, no, you've lost us. Um, the code to the universe became flesh, became part of the physical world. Beastly flesh. This was too much for them. This is part of the reason why Paul would say it's foolishness to the Greeks, because of course it is. You don't have those two realms coming together. The physical world and the spiritual were supposed to be separate, and we actually have, I think, a lot of the same difficulties with the incarnation now of God becoming human. Or I could put it another way. God became a fetus, right? He put on kneecaps, saliva glands, and a spleen, right? You hearing what I'm saying? So where in the West we have kept the spiritual and physical and the ideas and the physical quite separate in our minds, Jesus has brought them both together in himself. My old lecturer used to say something to really rattle us. He used to say, think of the three grossest bodily functions you can imagine. I'll just give you a few seconds, not too long. If you can't imagine Jesus experiencing those things, you're probably more into Plato than you are Jesus. Pretty, pretty strong words there. The real scandal, though, is that it actually just didn't stop with the incarnation of God becoming human. It was then this fleshly body of Jesus that was resurrected and then ascended to where God is. That means that a human being is reigning in heaven above everything with eyebrows and a bladder and toenails. Uh, we laugh because it sounds ridiculous, because we, we don't talk like this because we like to keep our spirituality very spiritual, right? But Jesus was like the needle that came out of God and weaved through all of humanity and went back into God, weaving through all the darkest parts of humanity, our alienation, our detachment, pain, and then even through death, and bringing it all into the person of God. Humanity is now part of the Trinitarian God in the most remarkable act of love. God welcomes humanity. He welcomes flesh into his very being forever in an irrevocable way. So in a very real sense, God won't reject us because God is one of us. And with heaven and earth joined, there's no way that we can say that this world is like a runners-up prize or a consolation prize. It's the reality that God himself loves and has joined himself to. God has joined himself to this reality. We aren't here to uh, participate in spiritual escapism. We're here to participate in this physical world that God loves. And at the end of all things, when heaven and earth become one, we won't leave here to go and be with heaven or Plato's world of ideals but we'll be living on a redeemed earth made as it was always intended to be because this world is God's project, not one out there. One of the first things that Jesus did after his resurrection was cook fish on the beach for his mates because he loves cooking and he loves fish and he loves the beach and he loves food and he loves his mates. So really, you're doing good theology when you enjoy a delicious meal, or play with bubbles, or take in an incredible view, or listen to good jazz, or hold your children, or do exercise. Because when you do, you are participating in God's love for this world. But we need to go further, because a lot of spirituality stop there and be like, yes, hedonism, great. 
We need to go further because it's not just about remembering to enjoy the world. That's very important. But it's loving this world often means loving the unlovely or the ones we feel are unlovely, those often on the outside. It means feeding the hungry, not just praying with them for them and being like thoughts and prayers, right? Giving material help to the poor, getting involved in this world that God loves. There was no separation for Jesus. He didn't just come to give us correct theology and to teach us to pray. He healed the sick. He fed people. He restored people because the bodies are them. When it comes to communion, he didn't just say, uh, these are my ideas, take, think, or these are my beliefs, take, be orthodox. He said, this is my blood, take, drink. This is my body, take, eat. We aren't just remembering when we take the sacraments. We are communing with God. That's why we don't call it remembering. We call it communion. N.T. Wright kind of puts it like this. N.T. Wright's one of the biggest theologians at the moment, says communion is like a kiss. Some people can tell you that they love you till they're blue in the face, but if they kiss you, you know it bodily that they love you. Communion is like that. It's a physical communing with God. You know it in your body. And our bodies are where we know God just as much as our inwardness. This is why physically coming to church with others, physically being in the same room as other people, forms us in certain ways. Being together physically molds us. It does something to our hearts and minds. It's good to be together. Now, I always feel real uneasy when that comes from the front because it can sound coercive, like you should be at church every week. But coming to church is an important spiritual practice. It reminds us what family we're part of, the ancient transnational community that's, uh, that can be found in every part of the planet, coming to the same table, identifying ourselves with the same person. C.S. Lewis, who gets quoted more than the Bible, said this, There is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant to be, uh, man to be more a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life in us. We may think this is rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. So if I go to the last slide, which I think is like a, yeah, this is a print that I just bought by an artist called uh, Scott Erickson. And this is called The Flourishing Heart. And I put this in my place to remind me that I pray and I contemplate and I learn about God's love and I want to get involved in it. But what should grow in it for me is a love for this world that God loves. Because when I become like God, I learn to love the same things He does. And it is this world that He loves, this physical world. So, to end, may we be a community that grows in our participation in God's love for this world physical world. Thanks, Josh.